We are in John chapter 18. No, uh, we've, been, we've been in the upper room for the last couple months. We're no longer in the upper room. We are headed towards the end. It was remarkable for me. I was looking kind of at the preaching calendar, and we have been in the Gospel of John for over a year and a half. I've got nine more sermons in the Gospel of John. It feels kind of strange to say that, that we might be coming to an end. Uh, Rabbi Matt was making fun of me last week. We were hanging out. I was like, you're doing 60-something sermons in John? That's crazy, man. So I guess that's what we do around here. And if you're used to it, awesome. If you're not, my apologies. You'll probably have to get used to it. Not every sermon series is 60 sermons, but some of them are. So we're in John chapter 18, and we're looking at the night of Jesus' arrest. And so before we do anything else, uh, I am going to invite Shelly, Deacon Shelly. She's going to come, and she's going to do our scripture reading for us. So I'd like to invite you just to open your heart to receive from God's word during this time. This is God's word. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing there, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Amen. God, we ask for you to help us to see see ourselves in this story. But more importantly, we ask that you'd help us to see Jesus in this story. God, I thank you for your patience with us when we are far too often, like Peter, uh, just misguided, impetuous, even fearful and cowardly. Jesus, thank you for your courage that, that saves us and brings us into right relationship with you. And I pray for myself, God, would you lead and guide and safeguard and direct my words that everything I say would be truthful and would be helpful to build us up in Jesus. And Jesus, would you get a lot of glory in our time together here? We pray this all in your name. Amen. So looking at this passage, it's a a fairly well-known story. The idea of Peter denying Jesus three times. And also this idea of Peter, as we just heard in our scripture reading, attacking one of these servants. And so it kind of brings up for me this theme of courage. The idea of courage and bravery, cowardice, fear. And when you start to talk about a theme like courage, there's a lot of material out there that defines courage. You know, uh, 
You can look up in Webster's Dictionary definitions of courage. You can watch TED Talks on what true courage is. You can, you can find leadership books that will talk about what true courage is. And I was talking with one of my daughters yesterday, and she's like, oh, dad, when you talk about courage, you should sing that part from Newsies where they, you know, they say that courage isn't, uh, you know, uh, what, I don't know what it is. Where, Delaney, where are you? You going to sing it? You want to come down and sing it? I got a microphone. Well done. Yeah. Courage does not erase our fears. Courage is when we face our fears. I also remember when Mackenzie was like four years old, she said, oh yeah, courage. That's like a warm soup that makes you feel brave. I was like, I think that's porridge, but close, like really well done. (laughs) Take a nice bowl of courage today. One of the great things about the Bible is that the Bible is not a dictionary. The Bible doesn't just say, here's courage, here's it defined, here's what it is, here's what it isn't. The Bible gives us stories. And we as human beings, we live stories, and, and, and psychologists and sociologists say that we actually learn best through stories. God and his wisdom has given us this account of the night of Jesus' arrest, and you're going to really see a contrast, a contrast between Jesus and Peter, a contrast between true courage and some misguided attempts at courage. So I want to read through this story and I want to draw out some principles about courage as we go through. And and I don't want it to be some dry lecture. I want it to be a story that we can immerse ourselves in, but I want us to keep our eye on the target. I want us to keep the big idea in mind, which is simply this. Because of Jesus' courage, because he saved us, we can live truly courageous lives. So let's keep Jesus at the center of it. Let's keep his work at the center of it and see what implications that that has for you and for me as disciples of Jesus. If you got your Bibles, let's start in verse one. We're going to go all the way through verse 27. When Jesus had spoken these words, anybody know what these words is referring to? The last two months of sermons. Thank you, Jess. Exactly. The last four chapters of the Upper Room Discourse. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. John doesn't tell us the name of this garden. Here he omits that detail, but the other gospels tell us that this is the Garden of Gethsemane and the Mount of Olives. And I was talking with Pete, who's leading worship here this morning, Pete uh, took a trip there a number of years ago, got to see the sites, actually said he stepped across the little dry riverbed that is the Brook Kidron. And one of the things, I came across it in the commentaries, and Pete told me that when they were there, the tour guide mentioned it as well, that the Brook Kidron kind of flowed down from the Temple Mount. There's the temple up at the top of the hill, and it flows down. And during Passover season, there would be so many sacrifices being made in the temple at the top of the hill that the Brook Kidron would literally be a river of blood flowing down the side of the hill. John doesn't put little details like that in there for just on accident. He wants us to think about passing through a river of sacrificial blood that Jesus is now entering in to the time leading to his death. And by the way, there are so many details like that in this passage. It is amazing. I won't have time to dive into them all, but I got a few more as we go through. There was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, John just wanted us to remember, that guy also knew the place for Jesus often met there with his disciples, 
So this was a known hangout for Jesus and disciples. This was a known retreat place for Jesus to pray for the disciples to meet more in private away from the crowds and especially away from the, 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 the peering eyes of the religious leaders and even the Roman government. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers, and all the commentators will say, these are not Jewish soldiers. They didn't really have that. These are Roman soldiers. And there's even a captain mentioned later here, uh, got some soldiers and then got some officers with the chief priests and the Pharisees. So these are Jewish religious leaders, Roman Gentile soldiers, all coming together, the whole world in opposition to Jesus which is an ironic backwards twist because Jesus is going to die to bring Jew and Gentile together in one family through his death on the cross. They have lanterns and they have torches and they have weapons. Now I want to draw something out of this passage and you'll have to forgive me. I am going to cheat a little bit by drawing from some of the other gospel accounts because John doesn't explicitly tell us, but he references that this is a common place where Jesus would go with his disciples. We know that he would go there to pray. And so the first thing I want to draw out of this is that true courage begins with prayer. True courage begins with prayer. Think about what Luke tells us. Again, if you'll permit me to jump to one of the other gospels for a minute. Luke 22 says that Jesus withdrew from his disciples about a stone's throw, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup. Remember that from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him encouraging him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. If Jesus, who is the son of God, the the divine son of God, the second person of the Trinity, if Jesus facing this difficult situation where he needed courage and he needed to be brave and he needed to face the most difficult, not just the, the, the physical pains of the crucifixion, but the emotional and the spiritual pains of having the father's face turned away from him. If Jesus needed to pray on that night, how much more do we need to pray? If you're facing a situation where you need to be brave, if you need to be courageous, How much more do we need to spend time on our knees, on our faces before God? By the way, read the rest of Luke 22. What was Peter doing? Not praying. What was Peter doing? Sleeping. And we're going to see Peter all over the map, all over the place. But I I just, I don't want us to rush to action without prayer. Jesus prayed. Jesus received encouragement from his father in heaven as he's facing to to drink this cup. An angel came and ministered to him. What if in prayer God ministered to you? We're not Jesus. I'm not Jesus. You're not Jesus. But if he needed to pray, how much more do we need to pray? Peter ought to have prayed as well. Verse four, then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him. Oh, I love that. This is not Jesus the, the hapless martyr or the victim. This is Jesus having his face set, knowing full well what's coming his way. He came forward. There's some courage. And said to them, whom do you seek? By the way, remember that line for a few weeks from now after a little incident we call the resurrection. 
Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, in case you forgot who betrayed him, was standing with them. Now, when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me. I have lost not one. How many of you are encouraged to know that in Jesus' last moments, facing this incredible trial and this incredible ordeal, he is protecting his disciples and his followers. And how many of you are encouraged to know that John tells us, little parentheses there, that our salvation in Jesus Christ is secure. That even in the moment of his torment and his agony and his suffering, his focus is on, I will not lose a single one. Saw a woman yesterday, or maybe day before yesterday, walking, she had like four dogs that she was walking. And I was like, no. I'm glad you're doing, I would lose at least two of them if I tried that. But Jesus, with however many millions, billions of followers of his, has not ever lost one. Is that encouraging to you? But the words I want you to focus on here, in this little moment, what a unique moment. We're here, we're looking for Jesus. I am he. Bam, they fall over. That's not normal. You know, people showing up to the church. Oh, I'm here. I was, I was looking for, uh, I'm looking for a pastor, Aaron. Oh yeah, that's me. Wham, they fall to the ground. I'm like, I'm leaving. I don't know what's going on. I'm not sticking around. In the English, it's three words. I am he. In the Greek, it is two words. Ego and me. I am. Now those words can be translated I am he. That's a, that's a normal kind of common translation, but scholars and, and, and commentators have wrestled with for centuries. Is Jesus is Jesus referencing the divine name there? The great I am, the, the God who appeared to Moses in the, the flaming bush and said, I am. Tell them the I am sent me. And Jesus stands up. He, he's made a lot of I am statements, has he not? I am the door for the sheep. I am the bread of life. I am uh, the, you know, the resurrection and the life. I am the good shepherd. And here he just stands up and says, oh, you're looking for Jesus? I am. And they fall to the ground as if dead. And then I love that Jesus steps forward again. Okay, who was it again you were looking for? He asked him a second time. That's awesome. Who are you looking for? It's Jesus. Yeah, it's me. You've come for me. Let them go. I think there's something to be said here about true courage coming from knowing one's true identity. Jesus knows who he is. Jesus knows his identity. Jesus knows that he is the only begotten son of the father. Jesus knows that he is loved by the father. Jesus knows that he and the father are one. Jesus knows that he came from heaven to earth to rescue and to redeem the lost sheep of Israel and that the message of his death and resurrection would go out to the nations to pull in people from from all nations and tribes into this one big glorious family. Jesus knows who he is. Jesus knows his identity. Jesus knows what's going on in his life and where he comes from and where he is going. And I think for you and for I, sometimes our lack of courage stems from the fact that we don't truly know who we are. So dear Christian, 
you who have repented of your sin and placed your faith in Jesus, might I remind you that when you entrust yourself to the hands of the Savior Jesus, that what is true about him is now true about you as well? Not because you've earned it, not because you've done it yourself, but because God simply says, this is so. That if you've entrusted yourself to Jesus, you are in Christ, to use the language of the Apostle Paul. You are wrapped in his righteousness. You are covered by his blood. When the voice came from heaven and said about Jesus, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Friend, that is now true about you too. Some of you live with this identity of God's displeased with me. He doesn't love me. He's against me. He is opposed to me. And I'm here to tell you, not on my own authority, but on the authority of the word of God, that that's simply, flatly not true. You are a beloved son. You are a beloved daughter of the most high God. Not because you've earned it, but because Jesus earned it for you. And if you know that, if you understand your truest identity, those moments when you fumble, those moments when you stumble, when you sin, when you say things, when you act ways that you don't want to act, you can say, ah, that was ugly. That was sinful. That's not my truest identity. True courage comes from knowing our identity in Jesus Christ. Verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. People kind of puzzle. Why why did we get his name? Most scholars have concluded that this Malchus guy eventually became a follower of Jesus and was known to the earliest church community. It may have had something to do with Jesus putting his ear back on. He might have had a moment where he thought, wow, I should probably follow this guy. I know that's not present here in the John narrative, but it is in in, in the other one. I think it's in Mark's narrative. Jesus, though, he, he focuses, he says, Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given to me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. You know, from one perspective, one might be able to say, yeah, Peter was really brave. Standing up for Jesus. No, he's my teacher. He's my rabbi. He's my king. He's my Messiah. I let, if he's going down, I'm going down with them. They got soul. I mean, from one perspective, you could say Peter was brave. But Jesus rebukes him. So obviously Jesus doesn't think that he's particularly brave. There's another factor going on here. I need to volunteer really quick. Wes, can I borrow you? Can I borrow you, Wes? All right. And he puts you on the spot. You can't say, oh, come stand here. I'm going to get a drumstick and I'm going to swing it at your head. Uh, because, uh, all right. So... It says that he cut off his right ear. All right, step here real quick. I promise that's, I sort of know how to play drums, so this should go okay. All right, if I swing like this and I go right there, which ear am I touching? Your left left ear. Good, good, yeah. Does he, okay, no, your left ear, okay. So, like, that's not, is Peter left-handed? Like, it doesn't say that. I mean, I know Peter's strange. I don't think he's that weird. Uh, But, like, sorry, my left-handed friends. Like, so is he doing this? What's happening Okay, now which ear am I touching, Wes? Okay, good job. All right, can you give Wes a hand? Thank you, sorry. Uh, All right, that was weird. Um, 
the more I studied it out this week, the more convinced I am that that detail is included in John's narrative to let us know that Peter jumped out and took a cheap shot. I don't want to stretch it too far. as my opinion. You could disagree with me, but I think I'm right. I think that Peter jumped out with all of his courage and all of his bravery, snuck up behind Malchus, took a cheap shot, cut his ear off. Regardless of that, Jesus rebukes him and says, I've, I've got something else going on here, Peter. There's more to the story than just you bravely attacking a young man, a servant of the high priest. There's something more going on here, Peter. You've lost the plot. You've forgotten the big picture. And so the third thing I want to draw out is this, that true courage comes from seeing the big picture. What, what is on Jesus' mind right now during this whole scene? What does he say? Peter, there is a cup that I must drink from. This is not just about arrest. This is not just about confrontation with the leaders. There's a cup. And this cup is, is, a, is an incredibly common metaphor in the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament scriptures, that is a picture of the wrath of God. I'll give you two verses of dozens. Psalm 75, verse 8. There is a cup in the Lord's hand. There's a cup of foaming wine blended with spices and he pours from it all the wicked of the earth will drink draining it to the dregs or jeremiah 49 for thus says the lord if those who did not deserve to drink the cup must drink it will you go unpunished no you will not go unpunished you must drink if you sin if you are wicked you will drink the cup of the wrath of the Lord. And some of you struggle with the concept of the wrath of God. But maybe you, if you imagine, I I volunteered at my kid's school earlier this week and out on the playground, I saw a moment where two kids were just nasty to each other and upset me. Especially if you see one kid bullying another kid and, and even the most merciful and the most compassionate of you can understand some feeling of like, oh, that's anger and frustration. That's wrong and that should not happen. How much more so a holy God who is watching the people that he created for love and for relationship, harming one another, abusing one another, taking advantage of one another and destroying the beautiful creation that he created for us to enjoy and to reflect his glory. Do you not see how there might be wrath in the heart of God? Wrath that is to be poured out on the injustices and the wrongdoings in the world. And Jesus said, I came to drink this cup. My mission, what you're missing, Peter, the big picture is I'm here to drink the cup. The the apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5 that God made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. That's the best news. That Jesus The one who has no reason whatsoever to drink from the cup of God's wrath. He was perfect. He never sinned. He never did wickedness that he signed up to say, I'll drink it. I'll drink it to the dregs. I'll drink every last drop so that my people can drink from the cup of fellowship with God. Dear Christian, there is zero wrath left for you. Because Jesus drank the cup. Even when you sin, even when you stumble, even when you falter, there is no 
wrath for you. There may be discipline, there may be correction, but there's not wrath. Not like that. Because Jesus drank the cup. On the cross, the full weight of the cup of the wrath of God was drank by Jesus and we get to drink from streams of living water. How good is that? The point here being though, Peter lost the plot. He forgot the bigger picture of what was going on. He was just so in his own head. He was so in his own little world. Peter thought that he knew how to defeat the forces of darkness, but only Jesus really knew how darkness was going to be defeated. True courage comes from remembering that big picture. Verse 13. So first they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. By the way, in case you forgot, it was Caiaphas, back in chapter 11, who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. You guys remember that? Actually, Pastor Shane preached that sermon a little over a year ago about this accidental prophecy that, that Caiaphas said, like, well, maybe we should just let this one guy die so we don't all die, not even realizing how true and right on he was. Now, Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple. If you've been paying attention, what is your educated guess as to who that other disciple might be? John, our author, likes to refer to himself in cryptic ways. Since that disciple, that other disciple, was known to the high priest, a lot of speculation, nobody really knows. How does John know the high priest? Well, we're not sure, but it got him in. He entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, but Peter, well, stood outside of the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, John, just say, it's you. Just tell us, it's fine. He went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. You guys tracking? John gets to go in. Peter's like, stuck. Oh, John comes, hey, I, I know the high priest. Let me bring Peter in. The servant girl, I mean, this is likely a, a, a young woman, 13, 14, 15 years old. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you're not, aren't, I, I thought, are you one of those man's disciples too? And Peter said, I am not. Now, the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire. I wish, you're going to think I'm so strange. I really wish I could preach a whole sermon on the phrase charcoal fire today. Come back when we're in John 21. The word charcoal fire, by the way, the Greek word for charcoal fire, I looked up, it's, it's the word anthrax. I, I know, it's, I, learned so, I learned that this week too. But it's only used two times in the entire Bible. Here, John chapter 21, just remember that preview of coming attractions. Because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves, Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. So there's a courtyard. Peter's there. He's keeping a little bit of distance. He's hanging by the fire. Smell the charcoal. Smell the burning embers. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in the synagogues and the temple where all the Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. I like that there's a, like a little bit of, like there's just a strength there to Jesus. I'm not, 
I'm not trying to lie to you. I'm going to stick to my guns. I've said everything that I have to say publicly and openly. You can go ask the people who heard me preach. And, and obviously they felt like this was disrespectful. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. Tell me what I said that's wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? So Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Fourth thing I want to draw out here is this. True courage knows when to hold firm. And I say this because there's a caricature about courage, uh, particularly in our culture, particularly among men, although not exclusive to men. It's this idea of, If you're a courageous, brave person, you speak your mind, you tell it like it is, you never, you never take, you know, no for an answer. You're just a, you always toe the line. You won't, right? In the words of that, you know, St. Tom the Petty, like I won't back down. You can stand me up against the gates of hell. Pete was pleading to lead that song this week. And I was like, no, bro, this is church. And actually the truthful, I was asking, can we, can we find a way to work that? And he's like, no, don't do that. But that's kind of the, the idea of courage. And, and, and while there's certainly an aspect of that that's true, sometimes I mean, we need to throw out the caricature, right? Courage doesn't mean you just always speak your mind. You always say whatever. We, we know from other passages, Jesus was silent at times, especially before Pilate, before Herod. Like a sheep before its shears is silent. But here he answers. Here he says, look, I have said what I have said. You know what I'm about. I'm not going to backpedal. I'm not going to recant. I'm not going to go back on what I said. Here I stand. By the way, this principle here of of knowing when to hold your ground is tied to the previous principle of knowing the big picture. Sometimes when you know the big picture, it's a time to, you know what? I thought I was being being brave and courageous, but I was probably more like Peter and I lost the plot. I need to say I'm sorry and and maybe adopt a more humble posture and try to learn and and try to, to grow. But there are other times or we need to put our toes on the line and say, I'm not going to move. This takes wisdom. It takes maturity. It takes community. Verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. And so they, these servants, these people standing around, they said, hey, aren't, aren't you one of those disciples? And he denied it and said, I am not one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of, of Malchus, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, said, I, mm, I could swear I saw you in the garden with him. Like I really, you were there. Like you jumped out from behind the bush or something. Like I know that you were there in the fracas and the scrum. And Peter again denied it. And at that moment, the rooster crowed. My fifth principle to draw out of this, which is true courage, is marked by integrity. True courage doesn't always mean being right and being strong. True courage means having the integrity to admit when you are weak and to admit when you are wrong. That's what courage actually looks like. Peter, (laughs) poor Peter, I mean, we're getting a, a, pretty serious contrast between him and Jesus. 
Peter's all over the place. One minute he's got his sword out and he's slashing and he's wanting to go to war. The next minute he's denying that he even knows Jesus to a young servant girl with absolutely no power whatsoever. He's all over the place. He's not considered. You guys know what integrity means? Integrity means being the exact same person, no matter what the situation or what the circumstances. Integrity means that if you were to be inspected, that your life would be up to the task. Integrity means, like, I don't wish this on anybody, but integrity means that if someone was to follow you around with a video camera or to blog about your entire life, like we have the written account of poor Peter. We all owe Peter, like, so many apologies when we get to, you know, the new heavens and the new earth someday. Like, man, I'm sorry, you are the, you are the bad example given to us to learn from so many times. But what if someone followed you around and wrote down all the things and all those moments of your, of your strengths, your weaknesses, would they see integrity? True courage means that you can say things like, I was wrong. True courage means you can say things like, I need help. True courage does not mean that you've always got it together. True biblical courage means you can say, I'm in need. So let me ask this question because you know, like I said at the beginning, we, we all define courage differently. And, and, and so some of you, even, even hearing me personally speak this message and teach this, some of you might even be tempted to object and say, oh yeah, Aaron, it's fine for you to speak about courage. You don't mind standing up in front of a group and the lights and public speaking and you're loud and opinionated and all those sorts of things and, and just back off, okay? But like, uh, you know, you could possibly try to discount and say, I'm not like you. I'm not, you know, that type of personality. It's harder for me to live with courage. But let me just ask this question. Not according to the world's definition, not according to my personality or anybody else, according to the Bible, am I courageous? And I mean that for you to ask yourself, not like me. Don't ask, Aaron, you're not very courageous. I learned my lesson last week. Ask yourself, not according to some cultural standard of courage, not according to some TED Talk definition or Webster's Dictionary, according to what the Bible says, am I living with courage? So let me, let me just refresh, right? Um, when you're facing challenging situations, do you, do I, automatically start with prayer? When we're, when we're you know, faced with a challenging situation, do we live out of our true God-given identity or do we try to get people to like us and feed our identity? Do we ever lose the plot? Or do we always remember the big picture and keep other people's perspectives, not just our own, in mind? Keep God's perspective in mind. Do we hold our ground when we need to? Do we, do we live with integrity? Friends, can I just say to you, according to this definition, I'm not very courageous. And if you're being honest, probably you too. I need to pray more. I need to have more integrity. I need to be honest about my failures and my weaknesses. I need to remember the big picture and not just get so focused on my own wants and needs and desires and my own thoughts about how things should be going. I need, I need Jesus' courage. <sighs> Which is what makes the gospel so sweet, friends. Because the gospel is that we're not saved by our own courage, we're saved by Jesus' courage. We're saved by the courage of Jesus. Think about this. Jesus had to have courage to leave the glory of heaven, to come live poor, weak, and despised. Jesus showed courage when he 
taught and called people to repent and and said things about the kingdom of God and, and where that challenges the kingdoms of man. Jesus had to have courage to wait until the right time for his death to not let it happen sooner than, than it was supposed to. Jesus had to have courage to face his, his mock trial and the, the crucifixion that awaited him. And Jesus had to have courage to face the spiritual rejection of the Father turning his face away. And I'll even take it further than that. I think Jesus had to have courage after his resurrection to appear to a bunch of skeptical, doubting disciples. And in a... In a, in a in a scene in a city where the authorities were looking for him again. And I'll maybe even to take it the, the farthest step, Jesus had to have courage to ascend to the right hand of the Father and to entrust his mission to people like us and Peter. <laughs> Peter, on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not stand against it. And you look at a story like this, like, when does that part happen? Well, it's coming. You and I are not saved by being really brave Christians. We're saved because Jesus is courageous on our behalf. And when you get that in place, when you get that perspective in place, boy, that changes everything, doesn't it? So let me, let me close with a couple of thoughts. Let me just, some application points for you to think about this week. As you're, as you, as you, does anybody here want to be a courageous person? I mean, does anyone here want to say like, no, I'd rather go out and be rather chicken if I could. You know, like, no, we want to be courageous people. We want to be brave people, but I want us to be courageous the way that, that Jesus gives us courage. So let me just share a couple quick thoughts. Number one, we need to practice personal honesty. That means we need to have courage of the heart. Okay? Like I said, Peter's failures were lived out in front of everybody. You and I may or may not have our failures lived out in front of everybody. But I want to encourage you that even if all of your worst moments were were brought out in front of everybody to see, if I had some sort of an app where I could just play a video up on the screen here of like, well, let's see all of, you know, Sam's worst moments this week. Like we'd all run out, right? Even if I did that, which I'm not going to do, that'd be a very bad pastor thing to do. But even if I did do that, God knows God sees and Christ still died for you. So you're still, you're that loved. You're that safe. You're that secure, which means you can be honest with yourself. You can be honest with God. You can be honest with others about the sins and not just the sins, the weaknesses. Are any of you suffering? Are any of you sick? Are any of you having just financial troubles? Are any of you just going through like drama at work or your family is really struggling? Whatever it is, maybe it's not even anything that you did wrong. Maybe it's not even a sin issue. It's just a struggle you're going through. Courage looks like having the kind of courage of the heart that can be honest about just where you are as a person. I would encourage you, just practice transparency. One of the ways you actually get more of a self-awareness is by confessing those things to other people. Number two, I want to encourage you towards the courage of the mind, the head, by growing in your perspective. Remember when I said a minute ago, like, we're, we're so prone to lose the plot. Anybody like, anybody agree with that? I mean, for me, it's like, I just, I get focused on my life, my wants, my needs, my week, my this, my that. And Jesus is calling us to remember the big picture, the kingdom of God is coming to earth. The, the storyline of the scriptures 
and the storyline of the ongoing redemption of the world through Jesus and through the people of God. And yet I get so myopic, not just in my own life, but even in our, in our culture, we lose the plot because of, I don't know, sports. Like baseball season started this last week. The Mariners. I can't even talk about it. I just, I've, they're doing well. And uh, I don't want to jinx it. I'm not superstitious, but gee whiz. Like, and like, I could totally lose the plot of what God's doing in my life, the life of the church, the life of the world, because of baseball. Like a stick and a thing and a, it's, it's, it's awesome. It's glory. I love baseball, but it's dumb, right? Like we could totally lose the plot. Pick your thing. American politics. What's God doing in the world? I have no idea. What's Senator, whatever your name do? I know that, right? Like whatever your thing is, right? Like is, is, is Downton Abbey still a thing? Like do people like still obsessed on that? Like whatever your thing is, we all can lose the plot. I'm pleading with you to seek to grow in your perspective, to seek to ground yourself in the storyline of the scriptures. Here's an idea. You're prone to read the books you like, to listen to the podcasts or the radio programs you like, to watch the shows you like. What if you tried to like read and listen and learn from other people's perspectives? What if you, what if you like somebody who's on the other side of the political aisle, someone who disagrees with you on certain biblical topics, what if you read some of those types of books and maybe you walk away at the end, you're like, I don't really agree with them, but I at least gained some bigger picture and some perspective on what's going on in the world and how God is working in human history to bring glory to himself and to bring his kingdom to earth. I think that might be courageous. And then number three, courage of the hands, being resilient when it comes to the mission that Jesus has given to us. Can I just tell you, Following Jesus will lead to times of difficulty. It's going to get challenging. Peter shrank back. Jesus pressed in. There is no difficulty that Jesus will ask you to, to lean into that he himself has not already gone before you in. He has gone there. And when you walk through the fire, he says that he'll be there with you. So you can trust him in those moments. When I even say things like, you can do it, you can, you can have courage, you can, you can keep going. I don't even actually mean that you can do it. What I mean is that Christ can do it in you and Christ can do it through you. Christ's courage lived out in you as you face challenges, as you face the difficulties of this life. Jesus, I pray you'd help us to be courageous people. God, we confess to you that we are on our own quite cowardly. We act impulsively like Peter. We shrink back like Peter. We lose the plot. We lose perspective. We don't live with integrity. We try to cover things up. And Jesus, we just bring that whole mess to you right now. And we say, Lord Jesus, thank you that you were courageous, that you were brave on our behalf. And I ask and I pray now as we enter into a time of singing and worship, as we enter into a time of celebrating the Lord's table, I pray that you would encourage us not something drummed up from within, not by a rah-rah moment, but by just meditating on the fact that Jesus died for us and rose again, that we might share in his bravery. Bless us now, we pray. Bring us close to you in this time. In Jesus' name, amen.
Pastor Kyle is going to lead us in a time of communion. We'll invite our younger students class to join us here in a moment as well. Thank you, Pastor Aaron. I just have to say for the record, Pastor Aaron did say that baseball is dumb. Uh, That was amazing. Um, Yes, very, very transparent there. Um, We're going to welcome the younger students to join us this morning. We're going to respond now to the Lord through communion. And um, being on this side of the cross, I think it's easier for us to to kind of forget and, and, and to lose sight of the weight of what Jesus felt that night. And I'm, I so appreciate the message this morning. Um, as when we think back to the night when Jesus was arrested, um, being on this side of the cross, we're able to look at it from a different perspective because we know that Jesus died. We know what happened. We know that he rose again. Um, we get to benefit from Jesus' courage. And that's an amazing thought. We get to benefit from his courage. Because Jesus drank from the cup of God's wrath, we get to drink the cup of fellowship at the Lord's table. And so this morning, we're going to take communion. We're going to take the bread and the cup, and we're going to meet with Jesus because of what Jesus did, dying on the cross in place for the forgiveness of our sins. We have this ability to be able to meet with God, holy God, us, sinful man. So I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians says, the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And it continues on to say, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. As we take communion this morning, we are reflecting on Christ's death and resurrection. We're reflecting on what Jesus did for us, giving his body as a sacrifice, shedding his blood for us. And then we're also called, in this passage, we're called to reflect, to examine our hearts. And so I would encourage you this morning as you reflect on God's word, as you reflect on the message, um, to ask God, where is he calling you to give things up? Where is he calling you to repentance? And how is he calling you to have true courage in your life? I'll pray for us in a moment, and then we will uh, spend time reflecting and praying, um, and then we'll respond through worship, continue to, to rejoice and sing this morning. So let me pray, and then when you're ready, take the elements and join us as we stand and sing. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this message today. We thank you for the word. God, we thank you for Jesus' life, his sacrifice in our place. We don't deserve your grace, but you pour it out. And you offer this gift that we get to come be with you, be in your presence. And so this morning as we take time for those of us who are followers of Jesus to remember you and reflect on your life and your death and resurrection. We pray that your spirit would move us and that we would um, go from this place today with joy and that we would go from this place um, with encouragement and, and being able to truly have courage the way that you did, Jesus. We love you and we give you praise this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.